we should all be thinking more contextually at the end of this practice scheme should always be this thing of taking the stuff that you've learned and putting it into the stuff that you actually play with someone. I really tell people also, you know, as as a sort of fundamental thing, learning banjo or any instrument, your influences, your ability to move toward that which you think is cool, like that's your skill as a musician. You know, that's, that's what you have. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I am your Picky Fingered host, Keith Billick. Hope everyone's having a great day today. Thank you very much for listening. I have a really great episode to share with you today, but before I do that, I do need to say a few things. First of all, ways you can support the show. Uh, the best way is to visit the Patreon page, patreon.com slash podcast, and become an official supporter of the show. Today, I'm lucky enough to have three real-life listeners who chose to go to the Patreon page and support this episode. The first person I need to acknowledge is a woman named Abby Tiger, who lives in New York City, and she is a fellow banjo-playing attorney. And I, was, I got to thinking, I've, I've met enough banjo-playing attorneys in my day that we could probably just start our own attorney banjo podcast offshoot of the picky fingers we could debate such things like maybe whether banjo playing should constitute an intentional tort you know important issues of the day such as that anyway abby thank you so much for your support the next one is a gentleman named james hannah who describes himself as just a middle-aged banjo player who's trying to have some fun well james join the club i'm really glad you're having fun and I appreciate your support, and keep picking for sure. The third listener supporter of today's show is Rick Bergstrom, and he mentioned that he really loves the thoughtfulness of the interviews. And I'll use that as a segue, because today's episode, I think, really epitomizes the, the deep thinking that some of these professionals do. I was really excited to get Chris Pandolfi for an interview on this podcast, for quite a few reasons. For one thing, I'm a fan of his, so of course I'm interested in hearing what he has to say. Another thing is, I know that a lot of you are interested. I would have to say that, well, I get I get a lot of emails suggesting players, and I, I've mentioned that before. I would say that Chris probably has received the most requests from you listeners in terms of people who you'd really like to hear interviewed on the podcast. So just really thrilled to be able to deliver that to you and I know you're going to enjoy and learn a lot from what he has to say. So for those of you who are perhaps less familiar with Chris Pandolfi and his career, he's best known as the banjo player for the infamous String Dusters, which is a Grammy award-winning bluegrass group, so absolutely worth seeing. They're a fantastic live show. He has released a couple solo albums of primarily banjo and bluegrass music. He also has a solo project that you'll hear him talk about called Trad Plus, which still involves the banjo, but is is a bit more of an experimental thing for him. Another thing that I would highly recommend that you all do is Google the phrase Chris Pandolfi Bluegrass Manifesto. And what this is, is this was a blog post that he released several years ago, probably 2013, thereabouts. But it's just a very good essay on the state of bluegrass, on on answering the question, what is bluegrass? 
and just this overall philosophy of about the trends in the music. And I, I think it's worth reading and it really is a, is a good reflection on, on his views on the subject. But of course, above all these other things, Chris is just a tremendous banjo player. And I thought he really had some valuable advice that he covers in this episode. Most notably, he has what he sort of describes as like a three-step process for integrating new ideas into your playing. And really, when it comes down to it, that's that's what we all are trying to do when we're practicing is somehow improve ourselves to be better than we were the day before and hopefully continue to become better each day. And he really lays out a good method for doing that. And even though I've been playing for almost 20 years, I've already begun thinking about the things that I heard him say in this interview. So I I think this is really useful information and I hope you will all get a lot out of it. Feel free to let me know what you think. Uh, Drop me a line at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to give me feedback about this episode, feedback about anything else, suggestions for future ones. Love hearing from you, so so drop me a line there. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider doing what Abby Tiger, James Hanna, and Rick Bergstrom did. Visit patreon.com slash banjo podcast and become an official sponsor of the show. So that's going to do it for me and all my intro stuff. Let's get to the interview. Here he is, Chris Pandolfi of the infamous String Dusters. school my older brother was an electric bass player and he was a flectones fan so we discovered the flectones and sort of discovered it in a bit of a vacuum like it wasn't as if banjo led me to this thing it was kind of the other way around it was just a cool band that it you was happened just, to like and and the live performance was so enthralling you know it was just so amazing mm-hmm. we started going to see them live and i was just all about it you know it was just something so new and so cool and um, I went to see him at the knitting factory in Tribeca and three shows uh, or three nights two shows a night and I went to all six shows that was your initiation got my first banjo (laughs) the day after the last show so really it was like uh, pure inspiration was was really at play there and flowing um, yeah yeah and i got the banjo and you know i just used whatever resources i could find i got warnick's book um, bluegrass banjo you know oak publications and um and up to that point you were not a musician i had music in my family my grandparents were professional musicians and my grandmother lived with us growing up she was an accompanist piano player okay and so i i had taken some lessons but this was like Piano lessons. Yeah. And then this, when I got into banjo, I was really, you know, sort of discovering it for myself, which I think can be an important step to, you know, really getting into something. And man, I just got so into it. You know, I started Mm -hmm. playing all day, every day. And and then that was the summer before my freshman year in college. And, you know, through college, I just sort of kept on it and was really, really into it. And then how many roommates did you alienate <laughs> with with your practicing? You know, I had I had my freshman year. I had a, a great freshman year roommate, my buddy Josh, and he was he was tolerant and you know on his, <laughs> had his own passion. So he was um, 
he was cool. And then it so- worked both ways. It Good. worked both ways. And then <laughs> sophomore year, I I moved in with some really close friends who also played music. So you know, we were Great. it was a safe space for for banjo, which is you know saying a lot. Right, it's um, hard to come by. We need like our a wildlife preserve for. <laughs> For playing, yeah. I had found I found my preserve there sophomore year, and I just was into it. Like I loved it, you know. And I and not only not only the music and the instrument, but also as I sort of started discovering the whole kind of communal thing and going to jams mm-hmm. and 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 then went right to grad school and you know did the Berkeley thing for two years, sort right. of before banjo was a thing at Berkeley, and then and then you know I was out. In, in the world, and I lived for a year in Boston and then moved to Nashville to start the String Dusters, you know, right soon after that. So I hadn't really been playing for all that long when I kind of went all in, but, you know, sometimes that's, like, the way it works and also kind of a blessing in disguise to make that commitment before you really know any better. Before you know better, <laughs> right. Were you, so obviously you were drawn to Bela. Who were some of the other players that you were listening to back then? So I, I got into Salmon. I, someone gave me a Salmon CD really early and I loved Mark Van's Mark Van. stuff. And yeah. cause you know, he was, I don't necessarily cite Mark as like one of my big influences, but now that I think about it, you know, he was really early on. He was a guy who I was hearing who really had that, thing that I think I try to do, which is to try to sort of fuse the fundamentals of bluegrass banjo and all the awesomeness of Scruggs and Tom mm-hmm. Adams, who I definitely count as a huge inspiration, try to fuse that with like a more improvisational in the moment thing that is contextually speaking more a part of other forms of music outside bluegrass. So it's like meeting the, you know, and that's kind of the string dusters thing too. You know, we we yeah. try to take what we love about traditional bluegrass and mix that with all these eclectic influences and different song forms, and and also this live experience of sort of extended improv, extended jamming with a group of guys who really know what you're doing and who, who can really support that mission and just make it that much stronger. And Mark, he really he did that. You know, yeah, especially when there wasn't really a precedent exactly. for what did they call themselves? Cajun Zydeco Slamgrass, polyethnic Cajun that, Slamgrass, polyethnic. Yeah, yeah. So th- there's no model for that before right. Mark Van and and uh, he got to invent yeah. his own style, which is is very cool. And you're I, right, there's a lot of similarities. I got into Mark and I got an old in the way, a couple old in the way records, and then I started getting into bluegrass. You know, and mm-hmm. I started exploring the old stuff and really loved Tom Adams. He just like spoke to me. I mean, he just was like, he had all the power of Scruggs, but he had just such a funky twist on it, you know, subtle, but his playing was always so, so strong. Like he always really just, like I say, sort of displayed those things that make bluegrass awesome. When people ask me influences, I really say, you know, Bela and Tom Adams and Earl Scruggs are sort of my my main three. 
That's really funny that you mentioned Tom Adams because I just thinking for myself, I feel like I don't think about him enough. He's an outstanding player. And, and what I think about your style really relates back to Tom because something that I think you do is focus equally on the rhythm aspect as the melodic aspect. Totally. And Tom is definitely a guy who could really twist the beat around exactly. and do these like upside down exactly. uh, rhythms and syncopations. <laughs> and, and it's funny, I never would have drawn that line, but now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense. And Earl did a lot of that. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of that on Adams County Banjo, little subtle things, like you say, where he does, you know, he reverses the role, you know, just he plays, you know, two forwards and one backward and then, then you know, one forward. And and a lot of the times, you know, people think of the term syncopation and they think of like dotted eighth notes or like notes that are jagged in comparison to each other. But banjo players, we tend, or the, you know, the banjo players that have influenced me and especially Tom and Earl, tend to space the notes very evenly it's the emphasis it's the distribution of that emphasis note amongst a grid of very evenly spaced notes that creates syncopation for yes. them yeah so instead of you know it's the difference between like someone playing sort of like a bouncy like whereas tom adams and earl scruggs would play everything much straighter and, and like the earl like You know, it's two backward, one forward, then backward. And that's what gets you that syncopation. Right. It's it's a melodic syncopation. Yeah, Um, it's where you place the note, you know, and not how you space the notes. Yeah. You know, and and I loved that, you know, and I just, God, when I heard his playing, you know, it was in a way just as influential as Bela was, and I heard Bela, I just heard this like off the hook, raw creativity, exploration, you know, combined with all these, all this technical mastery. But, you know, because he was the only player I was really listening to it, it, that wasn't what struck me as much as just the, the, the amazing creativity of it. Right. Come to find out, you know, he's, he's the man all around. But with Tom, that in more of a bluegrass context, that stuck out to me, and I just love that, and I've always tried to emulate that. Was that perhaps less intimidating at first for somebody who was just picking it up? I imagine you could have looked at Bela and probably be easy to give up right away if you even try to do the kind of things that that he does. It's a thing I've often thought about. You know, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but and looking back, you know, I can't change the way that I got into it, but. Mm-hmm. That was a really important thing for me. And, you know, when I lived, moved to Nashville and lived with Chris Eldridge from Punch Brothers, his dad, who has also been a big influence on ben, me, yeah. Ben Eldridge from the Seldom Scene, amazing guy, amazing banjo player. Ben was the one who really told me, you know, and I, he said something to the effect of, you need to learn traditional bluegrass so that it puts all the outside ideas in context. And that yeah. really resonated with me because. If you listen to all great banjo players, the players that I really look up to, from the really progressive guys like Vestal and Bela to the real traditional guys like uh, Jim Mills or Tom Adams, you know, they all have one thing in common, a super strong right hand. You know, they all just have amazing control and power with the right hand, and that's so much of what makes the music you know, really, really convincing. And, but, you know, it's funny with Bela, I didn't really know any better. He was the first banjo player I was listening to. So I just, I loved it, you know, and I didn't think this is more complicated than something else per se. But as I was becoming, you know, a player and I was 
getting out there and the string dressers were getting started, you know, this was some really timely advice from Ben and it really resonated with me. And it's something that I try to share with students all the time is like, if you can really learn traditional bluegrass and learn some of Earl's stuff and really listen to it enough before you even try and play it, that you know what it sounds like, you know what Mm -hmm. you're trying to do, you know how that role, the melody meets the role and just the fundamentals of the right hand. There's so, so much there. It's like, that's the blueprint for how this instrument, what, you know, is designed to create music. If you can assimilate those tools, you can take that and do so much with it. But without it, it's hard. It doesn't sound, it's amazing how much more convincing and musical I think you sound when you have that Scruggs bedrock underneath. I can't think of an exception. I'll put it that way. Right. I can't think of anybody that I know of who's really impressive on the instrument that seems to have just completely disregarded right. any system of, of roll patterns sure. or. And when you hear repertoire. someone, and it's always, a, you know, people are always surprised, but it's no surprise to you or I since we are so into the banjo. But when you hear a guy like Vestal or Bela, both great examples, and it comes time to play bluegrass, I mean, forget it. They can yeah. smoke that, you know. I mean, Scott yeah. is, listen to his stuff with Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, and it's like verbatim Earl, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge part of why he sounds so amazing doing all these different things is because he, he came from that place. Yep. So what did you do to help uh, foster that in yourself when Ben Eldridge tells you that you you need to focus on your right hand and start with Earl? How did you develop that? You know, I I tried to, for one thing, and I'm, you know, there's guys out there who are such deep Earl experts, you know, and, and, and I don't claim to be one of those guys, but I have spent a lot of time learning his stuff, you know, and, and I really swear by that idea of getting it in your ears before you try to learn mm-hmm. it, you know, and tablature is a, a crutch and it helps us figure out where to put our fingers. But if you really want to learn something, you know, and this is the approach that I took and I, I think it was a good one. I listened to a lot of stuff and I, and I just listened and listened to the point where when it was time to actually go and pick up the instrument and learn, there were a lot more connections being made versus just picking the notes off of a piece of tab. And you know right away whether you've done an incorrect thing and and can therefore address it right away rather than practicing something the wrong way. Exactly. And if you just go off tab, you know, tablature is not a replacement for written music. You know, written music is a graph of the sound. You know, it goes up, the, the tones go up, you know, it slows down, the tones space out. Tablature just tells you where to put your fingers, but it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you what the music sounds like. Yeah. And banjo players oftentimes skip that, skip that step. And I really think learning by ear is, is the way to go. So for me, I, you know, I learned the stuff off of Adams County banjo. And I, I really tell people also, you know, as, as a sort of fundamental thing, learning banjo or any instrument, your influences, your ability to move toward that which you think is cool like that's your skill as a musician right you know that's that's what you have you know and there's nothing wrong with emulating your influences and we all have differing perspectives on how to take that stuff then and really make it your own and what part of you know that equation for you originality what part of that equation is originality you know to some banjo players it matters much more than others some guys really are much more fascinated with copying that old school style but Mm -hmm. You know, if you're if you're going to learn, you know, yeah, you really need to just have listened and ingested that stuff and got it in your head before you ever try to go pick up the instrument and and make music with it. 
Yeah, and you you were mentioning before we started uh, recording that you think a critical aspect is how you take those influences and then incorporate them in a way that you can actually use them in, in your own playing. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about how how you think people should go about doing that or what's been your experience with with your own influences and how it influences your playing. Sure. Well, there are a few like pretty critical steps, I think, to change your playing, improve your playing. You know, we can sit around and noodle all day long, but will these ideas really creep into our live playing? Well, for me, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm playing, you know, a hundred shows a year with the dusters and, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, this is what I do. So I'm, I really have a, a, an interest in trying to sort of get to the heart of the matter and make good use of what practice time I have. And for me, the process is pretty simple. It really looks like a sort of a raw phase of coming up with some new ideas and then trying to play slowly and fluidly with a metronome through those ideas and like release back to an open role. Like for example, I was showing you before, I've been playing this kind of new scale. The, yeah, why don't you explain what the, right. the scale degrees are that we're working with? So really, it's just like a Mixolydian scale, but what I wanted to do was change the change that E to the D sharp for a little kind of like altered sound, you know, right. a, a diminished sound, whatever. So it starts with really just saying, that's the one tone I'm sort of chasing here. I really want to incorporate this new sound. So, like, I'll find it in two places on the neck, you know, here. And then here. And I'll, and I'll play slowly with a metronome to where I can, like, release back to the open rolling position, which in banjo is sort of like resting. Like, if you're a sax player, for example, you play a line, then you rest. But on banjo, we don't really rest. We sort of <laughs> yeah. go back to this. You know, yeah. so it's a function of playing, like, then back to the roll, you know. And then, so when you say release back to the roll, what I... What I and interpreting that as as someone who improvises a lot like you do that's that's your way of giving yourself an out so exactly. that you don't get stuck on a limb exactly. with no way to escape the more like i said so, so it's like phase one is sort of identify this new idea here it's just this one tone this one new scale An altered mode exactly of some sort. this sort of altered sound then the next next thing is finding as many permutations of that as you can and implicit in that step of finding permutations is finding places where it releases to like an open string based role or a sort of resting phase if you will so like for example going down when you hit that open g you're into your you can go anywhere you want right from there. you're into right. the sort of the low roll or if you play There you are rolling, you know, on, on the uh, on the eighth fret of the second string. Then if I want to go down. Eh. So there, I, and, I, and I'll spend some time really just trying to find where all those connection 
points are. And by the way, that I really swear is one of the things that, again, I use him as an example a lot. But Vestal is a great example of a guy. He just he moves from melodic to single string to scrug so effortlessly. Right. The ideas are so seamless. And I this part of the practicing may come very naturally to him. I, I you know who knows? It's different <laughs> for everyone. But for me, I really need to sit around and work these things out and find as many ways. Because if I if all I ever do is find like one new scale and try to figure out how to work it in. To me, that's not really improvising, you know. Mm-hmm. And and on banjo, there are a lot of very cool Scruggs licks in the lexicon that are really great and valid, and you hear them all the time because they're awesome. And they're they are sort of played, and and there are permutations of them that stick pretty close to home base. But if you want to really get to improvising, you know, you really you know if you listen to a guy like Noam or or Scott or Bela, you hear real improvising through like the melodic phase which is really a hard thing yeah it's notoriously difficult pattern based right yeah so in this part of the exercise i'm really playing slowly and trying to get through as many permutations release to as many sort of like rest phase rolling positions as i can and i'll just i'll really spend you know a couple hours just playing slowly with metro and finding those things and then the third phase of all this is to really work it into your playing. And that's where you pick a song, put the metronome up to, you know, 120 beats per minute or whatever medium, medium fast tempo, Mm -hmm. and then really find spots where those licks work and work them in and find how they integrate with the melody ideas because great improvisers will always use the melody. Right. You know, and, and we have a lot of overlap between the different melodies in bluegrass and that works to our advantage <laughs> at this phase of the game because if we figure out how to, for example, work a lick like this into a tune like Salt Creek with all its, you know, one flat seven, well, there's so many songs then, you know, June Apple and Squirrel Hunters and all these other modal songs that you probably can find similar yeah. applications. So, that's kind of how I look at the process of like how to change or I guess improve or inject new ideas into your playing is sort of find the new idea, find all the permutations, and then go to that crucial third phase of really working it into like a specific context. So just to dive even deeper on that, so what what made that light bulb turn on for you, that tone? Did you were you Figuring out a melody that used it and you thought it was interesting or you, know, you accidentally played it? I think I think I did what a lot of banjo players do, which is like I probably spent a lot of time just kind of noodling, I guess, mm-hmm. for lack of a better. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of learning in that. But as you get better at banjo, just like as you get better at anything, the learning curve gets steeper. And it takes more discipline and more sort of thoughtful, mindful work to really m- make a change. You know, I mean, when, when you yeah. get when you get good at something, it, it's harder to keep getting good. Each additional step is is more effort required. Yeah. Exactly, and so I think I found that in a lot of instances, I was, you know, learning new things, but sort of wondering why they weren't effortlessly coming into my playing. You mm. know, and and there's you know, there's sort of an overall approach to like, there's this whole mechanical thing with banjo, learning how to make a melody in the Scrugg style. And I got, I felt like I kind of got that well enough and I'll always be working on that. But I, 
when that made sense and I saw sort of a little deeper into that thing and was able to kind of start improvising with it, right? and a, a real light bulb went off, you know, and I was able to just sort of see that, you know, all the melody notes are the same on these bluegrass songs and there's so much overlap and, you know, how that melody concept intersects with all the funky little Scruggs licks that we all know. And I was like, okay, that that's improvising, you know, and once I sort of saw it in that light, you know, I kind of tried to take that out to the realms of single string and melodic style playing. And, you know, they're, they're just a, they're more dressed up style and there's more going on. And I think in a lot of, in a lot of ways, it just takes more work to integrate those things into your playing. Do you, so something like the example that you just played, you were strictly uh, playing it melodically, would you then, in practice, also go through some paces with a single string pattern? Yeah. Incorporating that altered tone, for sure. example? Yeah, exactly. Is that part of what you would do, too? It is. So, for example, so here, so, for example, right here's the, here's the Noah. Right. So there's a cool lick. Right. <laughs> but then I need to figure out how to put that into my playing. Right. You know, so then I'm playing Saul Krieg. I, I don't know if that was good or not, but, you know, I just. But it's something to, to start exactly, training yourself. Exactly. To do, yeah. So where does that lick fall? So interestingly, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's not the best spot. And that's what that part of the practicing is all about. Because if you just can, I know sometimes back in the day, I think I would, I thought that improvising on banjo was a lot of like going out on this limb and kind of hoping that you came home in one piece. But come to find out, you know, even guys like Mark O'Connor and Stuart Duncan, you're hearing them play, you're like so blown away, but they've been down those pathways a million times right. and that's what makes really con convincing improvising i think especially on banjo is a really strong foundation and then the ability within that foundation to move around a little bit and to let your brain follow this idea like for example if i'm not necessarily thinking about all those notes in this pattern i've just got that altered sound in my head it comes in mm -hmm. i hear someone else play it and i've got all these places that i can look for that, you know, and I've done the hard right. work of sort of figuring out all these permutations of these licks and how they fit into sort of the context of like rolling and melody and scrug stuff and how that all works. Yeah. Um, but you know, I hadn't necessarily done that one a ton for that particular altered tone, but that is a lot of times how I'll arrive at new ideas instead of like a whole new scale. It's just like one color note and then find some ways that I can roll around that note or where is that note on the neck and how can it fit yeah. into different positions, scrug style, melodic, single string, whatever. Just the more permutations you can find, the more tools you're going to have when it comes time to improvise. And, and like you mentioned, always have your escape route planned is fairly key as well. Yeah. I, I think that's a good tip. That's probably actually something that that I get hung up on now that I now that I think about it. I probably practice these without an exit strategy. And that's what and that's what, like I say, when you hear a guy like Vestal move so convincingly from one style to the other, 
you know, he just he just has these, you know, these moves, you know. I he knows, you know, if you're going to play like a like a same kind of like bluesy scale there it ends on the first string, right? I always know yeah, you can always go right. there. Right. Right, or or if I'm playing like this alter thing. Well, there it ends on the fifth string. There it ends on the, on this string. So I go. So it's it's such a big one for me. I know is you know you've got these licks and new ideas, but even just as important or maybe even more important is finding how to release to those open rolling positions you know and this is sort of phase two getting into kind of phase three of you know how to inject new ideas into your playing but without that it's like and those are you know that is sort of your escape route but you know it, when you really work it over and find all those different ways that you can get that's music, you know, that's where that's yeah. that's where it's at. That's how to make use of these new ideas. And when you have enough vocabulary, your the beginning of your escape route can really just be the beginning of the next sequence of, of yeah. whatever needs to happen with, with the music. Right. It stops feeling like an escape route and more just part of a longer journey. <laughs> You're not you really know? done. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Cool. But but it does feel like that to a lot of people who are learning to improvise. And I've certainly had that feeling of like, yeah. you're going out, you're going out, but come to find out a lot of meaningful practice and a lot of mindful work toward improving is actually about finding as many of these places sort of pre-planned as you can and just knowing where they are and just being versed and just having a bigger vocabulary. As comfortable as possible. Exactly. Yeah. Let's go back to some of the other things about your playing so i i had mentioned that you tend to be more balanced in favor of rhythmic patterns instead of just i mean you play very melodically too but i don't know is that something that you that you identify with i'm just trying to describe in my own words yeah. what i what i hear in your playing you you are very rhythmic oriented i i love to keep that strong role going and i love really strong rhythm and and I like using sort of a Scruggs bass for everything. But, and with melodic stuff, I tend to keep it kind of short and sweet. When I, when I have like melodic phrases or, again, you know, even just like a tone that dictates this different sort of, call it altered scale or whatever, I really try to find ways to play those succinctly so i don't want to get into these long epic melodic runs to me that is less improvising and more sort of like pattern basing and there's you know there's plenty of that and that's not a bad thing but in terms of me and how can i make the strongest statement to the crowd and really feel what i'm doing you know it's a lot of like when it comes to the melodic stuff like i'll be playing you know sort of like a So, right, or that last one I play. And 
then always come home to the Scruggs thing, you know? Yeah. Single string was always so hard for me because, you know, and this is like one of the real things about bluegrass that I've definitely struggled with is just feeling like, man, a real, uh, uh, there's a real technical barrier in there. And when it comes to like playing music, you know, I, I use the term sometimes like caveman style, just real visceral, like you're banging on a drum set, just like you can feel it, you know? Yeah. It's hard on banjo sometimes because if you're like me and, you know, your hero is Bela Fleck and Tom Adams and that's what sounds good to you, then you really do need to accrue a pretty big baseline of technique to sort of shut it off and play off the cuff and play something that people will relate to. Because if you're just going through... Very much. It's hard with banjo, you know, and you hear these guys out, you know, you hear Jens Kruger and Ryan Kavanaugh, and you're just like, I'm never going to be able to do that, Yeah, you know? But there is a lot of learning in that too. And I think embracing your limitations and letting those dictate to some extent what you do as a player, moving toward what you do well, which is a thing that people, I think, sort of shy away from. And I have too, just like, no, I want to keep the door open to be able to doing everything that there is. But the reality is, you know, and there's stuff that I do that that those guys don't do, you know. And the more that I can move myself in the direction of the things that I can do well, do convincingly, do really authoritatively at the show, the more my playing is going to, translate to the people in the crowd and that's essentially my job That's the thing I'm trying to get at. I mean, I I will look at it all and approach it all and try to learn these things. But at the end of the day, there needs to be some process for someone in my position of distilling these things into a meaningful style that I can really lean into at a show. And make your own. Exactly, exactly. And if all I'm ever doing is licks, you know, Bela Fleck licks that I love but are super hard for me, that's not going to translate, you know? But if I can take all that stuff and build it into a style, like you say, that's really original because that's something that people really relate to, too, an original statement in any artistic realm, that's kind of the thing. That's kind of the thing that I feel like we're all sort of working toward as professional musicians. Yeah. You brought up single string style. Are you still, the last time I talked to you about it, you had switched to, and this might be 10 years ago by now, I don't even know. You had switched to a, a three-finger single-string yeah. method. Is that still your approach? It is, and that that's kind of what I was actually just starting to get at is when I was learning banjo, I would try to play these passages, you know, like really hard single-string stuff that was all thumb and index, and that just yeah. did not come naturally to me. And that's how, I'd say, whatever, 95% of people probably play it like that single yeah. string just a thumb index exactly over and over and over and over exactly and it's just like you know it's just like a guitar yeah but i i sort of figured out you know that that above a certain speed that just didn't come naturally to me yeah so yeah you know i'll i'll do short passages with my thumb and index just like 
little things like yeah. that. But when it comes to going There's on two a, or three or four notes, exactly. When it, when it comes to going like extended single string runs, I'll go thumb index, thumb middle, right. and. much more legato too which is nice yeah and i you know exactly legato is the name of the game for single string and i would try to play these passages thumb and index and it was so staccato and so choppy and i i would rather play something else honestly it's yeah. an a musical sound to it you know that's when you are doing what you just said you shouldn't do is you're trying too hard to do something exactly that doesn't suit you well and that you can't even execute and it's well known you know in in all realms of like call it performance, you know, whether that's are the arts or anything really that sometimes people who don't have, you know, all the gifts right at the forefront, you know, you're really forced to sort of bring some ingenuity to the equation. Yeah. And there, and there's a thing there, you know, and that's and that's been a thing for me as long as I've been a player is I've really always looked really hard just to find easier and more efficient ways to do stuff technically. And that includes, you know, I used to anchor two fingers. Now I anchor one. And is it the pinky or yeah, the Yeah, just anch- yeah. anchor my pinky and and the single string thing. And lately I've been messing with this idea that I, I sort of realized that my thumb, if it's locked out at this knuckle, you know, like you see a lot of players, yeah. that sort of injects a lot of tension into the rest of my hand. Whereas if I sort of can let let that big middle knuckle on my thumb be a little more sort of neutral. Okay, so just to describe to people listening, what, what he's saying that he used to do is uh, thumb fixed in like a, a hitchhiking, uh, backward curved banana shape. Exactly. And he has gone since then in favor of more just a, a straight. More straight. Yeah. Even even almost like you're like doing the inverse of the hitchhiker thumb where you're like almost exaggerated. And... And like a lot of things, you know, when you're sort of making a change to your technique or when I am, you know, I'll just practice slowly a lot of rolls and then a little, little by little, your hand will start to assimilate that idea and you can, you can then sort of put it to the test and see, is this going to be a more efficient style? Is this going to be a better way to do things? And, you know, I've been messing with this for the last couple of weeks and it's, and it, all these little things, you know, add up to a bigger equation on banjo, which is a really a constant thing for me. I wonder if it is for everyone else. I'm I'm sure to some extent, but like if you feel confident with your technique, and this is again, getting back to the idea of like, you really need a big baseline to play viscerally. But if you feel, if I feel confident going into a show and I really warm up well and I get my hands moving and I don't feel limited, which is not, this is not every night, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you play 100 shows a year. They're not all going to be perfect. But on a good night and, and hopefully a thing that I'm moving toward doing more consistently, I feel confident technically that opens the door to musical when ideas. When you have none of your brain devoted to exactly. dealing with some slight discomfort or, or whatever is going on. Tension, you feel tight. Having to avoid certain things because exactly. you're just not feeling like you can pull it off. Exactly. Right? And so that's a huge one for me and something, you know, as someone, like I say, who I don't, I can't play, you know, 200 beats per minute like Jens Kruger. You know, <laughs> I really need to work up to playing at those faster speeds, especially single string stuff. But 
the more I've stayed kind of devoted to that path, the more I've seen the results roll in pretty consistently. More consistent. That, that if I do it well and I really pay attention to always trying to find that most efficient way that my especially right hand works on the instrument, that that gives me the confidence that sort of sets me free musically. And then those great nights where you just don't feel limited. You don't shy. It's just like you said, yeah. I resonates with me. You know, you'll shy away from certain things that are fall on that harder end of the spectrum for you to do. And or they all, will, yeah, all it takes is a small amount of distraction to, exactly. to get you out of the moment. But the opposite is also true. And you can really be yeah. set free by, you know, what for me has become like a really reliable warm up regimen before shows. And if I can get that confidence flowing, the music will really follow. So, Let's let's pick some of those things apart. So you moved from two fingers to one finger. Mm-hmm. What do you think that that helped for you? So that was after IBMA one year, and I was just like in some jam and wasn't able to rock as hard as I wanted. And I just sort of my mantra of you know there's kind of got to be a better way kicked in, and I sort of just started experimenting with it. And I realized that for my hand, and this is true for all of us to some extent, but the ring and middle fingers are connected in yeah. here, you know, anatomically. And so once I got used to feeling stable, I realized that my middle finger was just inhibited with my ring finger anchored on the head. You know, even though that's the way Earl Scruggs did it, that yeah. doesn't mean that it's the best way for me or for anyone per se. So I picked that finger up and it just sort of rides along with the middle. Yeah. And I can play just more relaxed, more balanced that way. The single string thing, you know, for a while I experimented with doing it with thumb middle, all thumb middle. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that the, the big advantage of thumb index thumb middle is that it really allowed me to more confidently, more consistently shift back into like the scrug style. It gave me more uh, options. Okay. So if I'm, you know, for for doing that part really that shift back to rolling became way easier when I incorporated the, the all three fingers. Interesting. Um, because what I found was like I'd be doing this like thumb middle and my index would be like almost sticking out here on its own. <laughs> yeah, it's you not know? doing you any good. Right. Whereas, you know, once you start to... Your, your fingers are all in a sort of tight pattern there, picking, and you can make the shift to any of many different permutations of right-hand picking patterns yeah. really easily that way. Yeah, that's cool. And you felt like you were able to, because a huge barrier to single string is just the sheer speed. Yeah. You feel like that has opened that door somewhat for you? Absolutely. Being able to play speedy? Yeah, and you know, the, with, with the single string speed thing... And I, you know, not can't do what some guys can do, but you know, I can I can certainly use it a lot. And you start to get to fast, fast tempos, and you know, it doesn't sound as good as some of the other things that I can do. So I, I I'll, I'll use that sort of editing process just to try to be my yeah. best. But when it comes to playing, you know, another important thing I will say for single string people who are really trying to get their chops up is. This is an area where the left hand practice is huge. Yeah. And as far as speed goes, single string is the one place where, you know, you really have to have shedded on a lot of like scales or even better yet, 
fiddle tunes, which we're so lucky to have Ooh. fiddle tunes as like this sort of kill two birds with one stone, learn technique, but also great musical Scales ideas. Scales and patterns, right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, you know, doing those, but yeah, you really got to work your left hand. You got to get those skills too. So I would do scales, you know, an octave and a third and practice tunes and then practice licks and then just do the same thing I was saying before with trying to incorporate that new scale or new idea. I'll just spend a lot of time sort of moving slowly, you know. You know, whatever it is, trying to move from some single string stuff to different phases of playing and slowly and, oh, I can start to make these connections and, oh, there's a thing, and then work that up to speed. Again, put it in the context of a tune and hopefully start to see it come out in your playing. I'm really glad that you brought up fiddle tunes because one of my most recent interviews was with uh, Bill Evans, who you studied with for some time. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure how it, it came up, but I think I asked him how what is his advice to advanced players? And so he, he cited that you were working with him. And you'll have to remind me what he might, may have said exactly, but I want to say that you decided that what you needed to do was figure out every fiddle tune, single string style in two octaves. And I, different I don't keys. Know. Yeah, explain to me what, what you might have worked on with well, him. Or... I mean, you, you can't... It's interesting because I think... Some of these exercises, you know, like there's guys out there who who are like, oh, you have to learn melodic style like in all 12 keys. Like I'm here to tell you that you don't <laughs> have to do that. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. And this is, again, our skill as musicians, just like being drawn toward the things that we think are cool, our influences, this process of figuring out, okay, I'm going to work on, the, I'm going to really focus on figuring out what are the things that are going to make a difference in my playing, mm-hmm. you know, because we can learn scales and tune, but learning melodic and single string and sort of scruggsy renditions of fiddle tunes, which contain such a great diatonic vocabulary and take us through the modes too. You know, we've got our Angeline, the Bakers of the world. That's like the major seven tonality. And then can, if you want to get outside, you can use like the Lydian sharp four. You've got all those different things you can use there. Then we've got all our Salt Creek and June Apple, these modal dominant mixolydian modes. And you can start there with the mixolydian. And then you can add in all the alter tones, the flat three, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot there. And then as far as sort of permutating them, you know, if you can learn things open G, open C, and open D, with a capo, you can get you're anywhere. pretty covered. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do in, say, open F. You know, yeah. I love open F. Is it necessary? You know, I mean, it, it depends on the context. Like, ultimately, I need to get down to working out stuff that, is good for the songs that we play on stage or that I play in my side projects or whatever. Yeah. So there's a context there. And players, I think, who are just players more recreationally have a hard time sort of seeing that picture. But it, for them, the question is like, what are the songs you play at jam sessions? Mm-hmm. What are the songs you play with your local crew that you pick with? Practice those songs. Yeah. And it's amazing how many students <laughs> don't actually do that they're they're kind of like i don't know what to play you know it's like we should all be thinking more contextually at the end of this 
practice scheme should always be this thing of taking the stuff that you've learned and putting it into the stuff that you actually play with someone. A bit of pragmatism involved. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so for me, before I was a professional performing musician or anything and just trying to assimilate as much information as possible, I loved that and learned a lot of stuff. Now, a lot of things sort of fell by the wayside and didn't, and, but boy, did a lot of great and, you know, valuable things creep into my playing and sort of became part of, you know, what I do forevermore, but also just as important was finding my stride, you know, in the process of it. It's not just about some specific lick. If you can always be thinking, one step deeper and trying to understand how these things process-wise influence what we become as musicians, we're just so much better off, you know? For sure. I could keep talking about this stuff all day, but uh, <laughs> I, I would feel regretful if we didn't at least talk about your instrument here. You have a really cool banjo. Tell me about where that came from yeah, and what so it is. This is a 1930 Style Three pre-war master tone. And the serial number is 9551 is the first four. And that's a big batch of style threes that Gibson made in 1930. And, you know, I I played so many great new banjos and I've got, uh, you know, I've had a bunch of Huber banjos and I've got a banjo that Robin Smith built for me. And there's, those banjos are incredible. They're awesome, you know, but there's something about these old banjos that is really hard to replicate. And if you ask me, it has a lot to do with the, the sort of, cohesion of all these pieces over time and the way that wood changes over time and you know any pre-war aficionado will tell you that it's been really hard to replicate the sound you know and i uh, this one is a a style three with a huber hr30 ring and a robin smith neck and it's just a great banjo that really kind of does it does the scruggs thing But it also does, you know. It does it does all the sort of prettier, more melodic things right. to my ear really well. It's got drive, it's got a lot of versatility, but um and it's also, you know, the neck is really made to spec. I love robin's necks and yeah. you know he's he's built so many for me now so i have this one and i actually have another style three from that same nine five five one. Oh, that, cool um that could have been made like on the same day in 1930 um and then i've also got a really cool style 11 that is sort of the crazy white you know perloid fingerboard and yeah. back of the resonator and those are sort of similar to style one but i really just think these old banjos especially when you put them behind a microphone they're so balanced and that's a challenge that i've had not only in live situation but also in the studios is having the banjo is a loud and it can be a very sharp instrument you know i I hadn't noticed (laughs) loud exactly and they they're hard to wield you know i mean they they can be they can be pretty cacophonous if you if you aren't you know really measured with your right hand and there's a right. lot of control i mean we're talking about you know all these right hand 
just playing faster, playing smoother, but so much subtlety, every attack, every tone, how far from the bridge, all these things. And when you take these old banjos, especially this one, which I played um, on our last album, Laws of Gravity, and then played on our, our new album that comes out 2019, I just really notice such a, a great balance in the studio and, and versatility. And they just, for what I do, there's a lot of musicality there, and it just really brings everything to life kind of in the right way for me. What convinced you? Because I've followed you for some time, so I, I did notice that you you hopped from Huber and Rod, Robin Smith, and I've seen you play those. What was it that convinced you that this was a worthwhile thing to to jump into? Because it's not the least expensive no. hobby to, to have, let's be honest. And it's a good question because I, what is it that like makes you sort of start to ask those questions of yourself or become dissatisfied with your tone? And that's sort of what happened to me was I was playing one of my Robin Smith banjos that I think sounds incredible in the room but doesn't react well to a pickup. And that mm. banjo had a mahogany rim, which is really unusual. You know, 99% of rims are maple. And as I sort of, and I borrowed a banjo that had a maple rim and, or actually, no, I took one of my Huber banjos that had a maple rim out on tour. And sure enough, it just had a more direct tone, less, less nasal kind of mid range once the pickup is in, which is sort of an imperfect science as well. But the maple rim was a more direct and clear sound. So I had that going for me, but then I was sort of contending with this problem of, Unevenness, which is what I was saying before, okay. I think is what the pre-wars really do well, and I, just like, the range of the neck. You yeah, mean? and like clockwork, one note would be really dominant, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm sure other banjo players, especially when you use the pickup, find this, and it's like, oh my god, if that note is say an E, and you put a capo on at the second fret, that open E is going to drown out yeah. your tone, and so then I'm up against that, and. I, you know, in talking to some mentors and, you know, guys like Bill Evans and Tony Trishka, um, you know, especially Bill, who's a big pre-war aficionado, I just decided I had to get in the game, you know, and I started trying a few. And then um, this one was was sent to me to try out. And it was interesting. I didn't, like, love it right away at first, but after I got it set up for a few days and it started to come alive – and then I checked in on this issue of balance. I was like blown away. And wow. I've never had that problem with this. And this is the main one that I've toured with for the past couple of years. But I also toured with a Style 1 yeah. that, I, that I recently sold. And that banjo was awesome too. You know, I just, now that I've got the two threes and the 11, I didn't play that one as much. So I. Was this actually the first one that you got? This was when the you first started? one. Okay. Yep. Yeah. This Style 3 was the first one. And it was funny. We. Not long after I got it, we played a show in Virginia, and Bela was sitting in with us, and I was like all amped for him to check <laughs> out this new banjo. And he, without even prompting him, you know, he said he was like that helps you out a lot. Wow. Yeah, and he noticed it, and he played it. Um, he played this one, and what a great you know kind of validation. Yeah, yeah, validation exactly. And he he had said the same thing to me, and it was like an issue of. It's hard because we judge these instruments how they sound on their own, but judging them how they sound in the context of a band is a whole different animal. Wow. And Bela, you know, he plays one banjo when he's playing solo that's rich and deep and all the deep tones, but that may not be what you want 
when you take it to the to the band. And this one cuts, but it's got really a lot of tone and color, so it's a sort of a great mix playability yeah. of all those things. And you know, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. And when I listen back to recordings, even though, like I say, it is a bit of an imperfect science, I think that these are definitely sounding the best of anything I've had or or, or played. It, it sounds incredible. I Thank can, you. I can definitely say that. Take me through the the rest of what you have going on. We have banjo nerds as listeners, so they yeah. want to know what your picks are and your yep. bridge and your strings. And Absolutely. So everything. I've got. Um, so it's a Robin Smith neck, and I've got the Keith standard tuners on it, yep. which I I love just the way that they're geared. Is that it, a radius neck? By the it's way, it's a radius. It like it. Okay. Yep, it's a radius neck, and it's a it's a pretty slight radius but it really does make a difference especially when i go into kind of those inside out rolls with a thumb over oh i see you know that's really the main thing and i just when i play i have a banjo that has a flat fingerboard and that becomes it's 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 just more comfortable on on this neck um I've got a um, Silvio Ferretti Scorpion Bridge, which mm-hmm. Silvio is the man. And yeah, he, he really is. He really makes great stuff. And um, I've got this new armrest from Banjo Lit from Richard, um, who this from, Europe, the, from the Czech Republic, right? yeah. exactly. And, and, and similar to um, the Neckville design, but it has worked better for me. And it's just, it's like beveled and more comfortable and, you know, we play outside in October and November, and it's like the the it, metals it freeze freezing. your arm exactly. Yeah. And I've got a uh, this cool strap that Bobby Poff Poff Maker made for oh, me. Oh, it's got a panda on it's it. Got a panda That's great. On it. And the pickup is an EMG, um, and they've got two pickups on the market. And this is like the barrel, the simpler one, and it's basically a similar design to the Fishman, but. It's nice because you don't have to solder it, but it's also just been a little bit more balanced and taking me a little bit more in the direction, like I say, of not having like one note dominate. Like this one has been a little bit more balanced. And and I'm pretty sure that you can get these like at a guitar center now, these new. They had another design that looked like a humbucker, but this is the barrel. Like I say, it's just like a little round piece that goes right under sort of the middle foot of the bridge. Um, Is this the one that Kavanaugh would have been telling me yes, about yeah exactly okay. and Kavanaugh and does it come up? oh sorry go ahead the Kavanaugh and I have both worked with Rob Turner who owns EMG who mm-hmm. has developed this this pickup um you know just to try to get it's just hard you know and when, especially when you get out live you know this the head is like a big mic diaphragm right so you know like a lot of players I have a a, a block of foam that I fit between the coordinator rod and the head on the inside of the resonator and it just chills things out it just makes my life easier makes our sound engineers lives easier fights feedback and gives a more direct tone because tone is great but if people can't understand the notes that you're playing there's no point yeah you you know you really need that first and there are certain guys you know like Andy Thorne from Leftover Salmon, who's great, or Vestal, you know, when he plays with Sam Bush Electric, who like completely stuff their banjo. And that's one end of the spectrum, and you get so much direct note action. I try to go somewhere in between where it's a compromise of, you know, you do have some of that open cavity, and the banjo essentially sounds the same with the foam in there, just a little bit quieter. Yeah. So you got that acoustic tone, but just less prone to feedback. Less a overtones. Little, yeah, right. less overtones, and just more 
direct communication with the audience. Like when you, especially when you're playing fast, they can hear those notes, and if they can't hear that, it's like, what's the point? Yeah, so, yeah. and then I use Diderio strings, and right now the gauges on here are 10, 11, 12, 20, 10. Um, and I'll change that third string. I'll sometimes use a 13 and, as opposed to a 12. But um, just when I you mix feel it like up. it? Or? Yeah, okay. I, I mix it up. I mean, there's not some huge difference between the two, you know, and I've been messing more with, you know, playing bends, especially on that third string. So yesterday when I was, or the day before the first show, yeah, yesterday I was changing strings and I thought, I'll just try this for a few days and see how it is. And I don't notice any huge difference, but 10s on the outside is basically what I use, 20 on the fourth. Definitely a starting point, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, what's the rest of your live signal chain then? So I go from the banjo to the Grace preamp, the Alex, the one-channel Grace. One, yeah, it's like a Felix Jr. Exactly, kind of thing. Yeah. and they've got three, and that's sort of the middle one. The Felix is two channels, and they've got a small one-channel. This is like the medium-sized one-channel. Okay. So it has one sweepable band of, of EQ, and it has you know a high and a low and a boost, and it's, it's really well made and then you know i don't use a ton of effects i have a delay pedal on my rig that i'll use a few times a night the one effect that i use a lot that i think is cool and kind of unique to me is an octave pedal okay and you'll definitely you know you'll hear it tonight you'll hear it if you go to a string duster show and it's just it gives me some variety it gives me some a way to fill up some space that i don't normally have you know but i i try to really i try to make it all happen and be interesting with the playing and not rely too too much on the effects but the octave's cool because i can sort of play more spaciously but really hold things down and the other guys in the band are you know you got to have some variety and you got to have opportunities where guys can take a break and mix it up and the octave is is cool that way is that a pog it's a pog okay yep now you're not using any microphone whatsoever so i i am using a microphone It's, it's it's um it's, I believe it's an Audio Technica Pro 35. And everything I do is wireless too. So, um, you know, I've got my ear pack and then I've got one pack for my DI and another pack for my mic, which is people like think that's insane. But until you try it and you get used to it, you know, sometimes when we live stream our shows, I'll wear a fourth pack that sends audio to the iPhone, which I will clip right. here on the peg head and do the banjo cam thing. But the mic is less of a factor as the shows get bigger and essentially louder. Less I, of a factor as in terms of just balanced out of yeah, the signal altogether. Yeah, it's lower in the okay. in the mix. But the great thing about the mic is I can mute the DI and still have the mic in my ear so I can hear myself to tune. Oh. And these are, you know, the great luxuries of having we have such an awesome crew and they, you know, have basically yeah, gated the DI so that when the DI is muted, the mic is also muted out of front of house, but on our monitor console I'm still getting the mic. There's no gate there. So uh, a little work around there. But yeah, that mic actually, you know where that comes in more, becomes more of a factor is for our live recordings. So like we're about to re- release another, and we do these so a couple of years. when you mix year. that, you can, you can bump it back up. Exactly. Okay. And that just sits sort of right down below the tail, sort of between the bridge and the tailpiece down here. External um, or internal? External. Okay. Just clips on to 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 one of the... To one of the hooks and um yeah i put it about an inch off the head and you know i mean it doesn't sound like a pristine mic 
in the studio, but it certainly gives it a natural thing and it gives it some air because that direct DI tone, you know, when you take the speaker out of the equation, just gets harsh, you know? Yeah. So you put a little air in there, a little room mic, and it starts to make it sound much more natural. Yeah. What about studio mics? Do you have a, a preference? You know, I use, at my home studio, I use an Audio-Technica 4060, which is a is large the diaphragm tube one. Tube one. Yep. Okay. And it's a great mic, and it's a great mic on for my style. And then I usually usually combine that with a small diaphragm condenser. And I've had great luck with a mic made by a company called Violet, the Violet Blackfinger, mm. and there's another one called Goldfinger. And it's not an expensive mic, but, man, it, it captures used with the 4060 and balanced and put them in phase and they just because this is a a complex thing and you know you've got this this big circle and different sounds and it takes a second and a few feet away from the instrument i think for it to all come together kind of to focus and try yeah. to capture that in close to my ear is hard to do with one mic so that sort of we'll put the 4060 kind of above sort of pointing down at the quadrant sort of above the bridge and strings here, the open part of the head. And then I'll put the um, small diaphragm pointing sort of at the lower quadrant between the bridge and the neck. And then just move them around and use your ears and, and figure the phase out. And... Figure the phase out, find out what sounds best, and then figure out how to use them together to represent the full spectrum of tone of the instrument. What about for string duster recordings? Is there a, a go-to for that or just whatever the studio... So so for duster recordings, I've used a variety of things, including the 4060, but a lot of times if they have like a vintage Neumann that's the same design yeah. as the 4060, basically large diaphragm tube, it's, it's real clear, but it's also got some warmth and character, and then that, you know, the banjo, you don't want it sounding too dry, too crispy, especially on passages where it's played, you know, more legato or like in a more modern style and then but even for the bluegrass stuff having that tube in there is is really is really nice so that and i'll use like a little bit of outboard compression but i've got you know for my trad plus stuff i've got i'll try all kinds of crazy stuff recording techniques yeah um, just and we're we're kind of getting short on time but we didn't address any of your trad plus stuff why don't you give a quick pitch to yeah. what, what that is so trad plus is my my solo project where I sort of take the banjo and totally recontextualize it along with, uh, I've got one album out called interference and it's, um, drums and a lot of virtual instruments and also analog synths and a lot of samples that I make have a pretty big sample library of mm -hmm. stuff that I've both recorded drum samples that I've recorded and a lot of vinyl samples that I've taken into the computer myself. And okay. so I, I'll mix, Beats with with samples and virtual instruments, synths, and really whatever else to just do something totally wide open. You know, I love yeah. I love the banjo, I love bluegrass, but what I really love is composing. You know, and making my own statement, and so that just sort of takes me a big step further in that direction of like of creating a sort of dream band that draws from sort of ambient and electronic and more electric textures just to create something really original, you know. Have a different outlet than yeah. what you, you're so used to. I've got a new record, um, a new Trad Plus project that's almost done. Oh, cool. 
And it incorporates the banjo quite a bit more than the first one right. um, interference did. But you can you can get interference. It's all on Spotify. And I love the way it turned out. You know, I'm really proud of just, you know, doing it. Like getting yeah. out. Like it took me forever to finish my first project. Because, you know, that's another big one. As an artist, you're like knowing when to say that you're done. That's another. It's good one. enough. Right. Exactly. Especially when it's just you. Yeah, and when you've spent a lifetime, or not a lifetime, but you spent years, just so many hours playing banjo, and then all of a sudden you're into this new realm of production and VSTs and all, and and samples, and it's like, well, do I need to shed this from the ground up? So I sort of got to a point where I was like, no, I I feel really good about using this stuff to build a framework around my compositions and then on the new one i just wanted to sort of do it all so i brought more banjo and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of parts where there's like harmony banjos two three four banjos going together against a lot of like classical vinyl samples and driving beats and stuff like that so really hoping to get that one done and then hopefully get out and play some shows one of these days. But I also do a fair amount of... You perform as Trad Plus? I too? have some, but you know it's also an arm of... like I, I do a fair amount of recording for TV and film just for licensing. Mm-hmm. And I use a lot of those skills. And that was sort of what introduced me to a lot of, of that world. But getting out and touring... When, you know the dusters are so busy. That's not necessarily what I'm looking to do in my off time. So, yeah. Trad Plus gives me a great outlet to not only spend a lot of time and work in the studio on a project that I think is really sort of designed around the studio. Like mm-hmm. if I'm going to go out and play live, I'm going to have to like learn how to do that. But it also bleeds into my my licensing stuff. So it's been a great sort of kill two birds with exactly. one stone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, good excuse to to be productive in that way. All right, man. Well, uh, we're just about out of time. You got a sound check, but tell everybody how they can track down your your playing online and figure out when to come see you. Yeah. Well, you can always check out stringdusters.com. And I believe that's thestringdusters.com. And you can check out chrispandolfi.com for. Um, you know, all my stuff and producing projects that I'm involved in. And then trad, T-R-A-D dash plus P-L-U-S dot com will get you all the trad plus stuff. And you can easily find that through chrispandolfi.com as well. So yeah, we're we're out on the road constantly and um, you guys should come see us. And thanks so much for having me, Keith. This is great. Man. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks. Absolutely. And that wraps up today's episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode featured excerpts from the following songs. The first clip was from Ginny Wits, which was a tune on Tom Adams' album, Adams County Banjo, with Tom Adams playing banjo. And the second one was from a song titled Gravity, which is on the infamous String Dusters album titled Laws of Gravity, of course, that's Chris Pandolfi playing banjo on that, and that is the album that won them their 2018 Grammy Award for the Best Bluegrass Album, so I hope you enjoyed those. Extra special thanks to the sponsors of today's podcast. That's Abby Tiger, James Hanna, and Rick Bergstrom. Thank you all so much for your support. Once again, go to patreon.com slash banjopodcast if you enjoyed the show and would like to become a sponsor yourself. Email me, pickyfingersbanjopodcast.com at gmail.com. Always love hearing from you listeners. 
Make sure you subscribe and rate on iTunes or whatever platform you're getting this on. And otherwise, that's going to do it for me. I'll see you all next time.